Amen. Okay. Well, um, while I get started here, we'll take up our offering. Um, so we do have gift aid envelopes, which are on the backs of your chairs there, and the ushers will go around. But if you're a guest or visitor, don't feel obligated to give. So the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the, the, on this series called Unveiled Faces, and um, Alan was talking particularly last week about how we were born, how we were made to see the face of God. And when the Bible talks about the face of God, it is that sense in which the face of God is our encounter um, with the living God. And to see someone face to face, it it speaks of of intimacy. And um, I was just reflecting on that, and I was thinking, you know, so often uh, when it comes to us and our relationship with God, we're not looking for God's face we're looking for God's hand or we're looking for God's arm. And, and very often in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms, it talks about, talks about the, the, the working of God's hand and of his mighty arm. And, and so even just as, as you think about the face of God and how do we, we encounter him, I would just encourage you to think, do our prayers reflect our desire to um, encounter the face of God or are we looking for a hand out or a hand up? all the time and actually is there maybe a wee bit of an imbalance there that we need to just address and change um, but what we're doing over this series comes from this passage in particular um, from second corinthians which says we all with unveiled faces contemplate the lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the lord who is the spirit so with unveiled faces there's no barrier between us and God, that we contemplate or we see God's glory. I'm going to talk a bit, little bit about that later. We're being transformed. Uh, and the word in Greek for transformed is the word metamorphosis. I'm going to talk about that later too. With ever-increasing glory. So something that is increasing all of the time comes from God, who is the Spirit. Um, so God has always desired to reveal himself to people to mankind, to connect with them in relationship. And after the fall in Eden, we see that God does that. And he does that in a number of different ways. First of all, he does it through individuals. So we have uh, Noah, uh, and then we have uh, people that come along like Abram. And from Abram, he takes this individual and he says, I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to make you into a nation. And God decides to reveal himself and who he is through an actual people group. Um, so that the whole world can see, as God relates to one people group, what God is like and who he is. So for us to understand God's nature, his character, his strength, everything about him, there has to be a revelation of him. And when there's a revelation of him, of his perfection and his power, it also provides a revelation of us. It's only when we see God that we see ourselves as we really are. And just as we sort of interesting way of thinking about that. Does anybody remember the Das Doorstep Challenge? And uh, this is circa 1993, so you can let on that you don't remember that. But um, it's been done by loads of different people. We'll not have a competition to name them all, but uh, Danny Baker, I think, was the first one. And they would knock people's door and they would say, are your whites whiter than white? And um, somebody who didn't know that they were coming would uh, pull out their whitewashing and they would have this brilliant white t-shirt that was just completely glowing. And then you would bring out your kind of greyish whites that have been washed with other things over a while. But they looked all right. But when you compared it with the, the Daz whiter than white, you realised, oh, there's a big difference here. I thought my whites were white, but, you know, because I don't have one particular product, they're not. Um, and it's only in comparison 
that we see things. And so for us to understand who we are, the nature of sin, the nature of our lives, there needs to be a comparison. And that comparison is God. When we encounter the living God, we go from thinking, oh, do you know what? I'm a really good person. I think I'm great. I'm doing okay. To, oh my goodness, what is going on in my life, in my heart? It's the encounter with God that leaves us go understanding who we, who we fully are. Uh, and um, I shared this quote the other week um, from the Congo Revival. Uh, I think it's sort of written about the 1950s and it's in a book by Helen Roosevelt. But it says that when revival came, our people had a revelation of the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. And they know now, not in their heads, but in their hearts, that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. The sinfulness of sin. I found that, that uh, little phrase really challenging because actually we're quite blasé when it comes to sin. Oh, it's not really that bad. And, um, and we like to compare. Uh, and we like to compare not with God, but with other people. Because there's always somebody that's worse than us. There's always somebody who, whose behavior is worse than us. And so when we think about our lives and who we are and what's going on, we think, yeah, you know, but if you think about such and such, you know, as so people always compare, we always go to Hitler, don't we? Uh, but, you know, Hitler was really, really bad. Of course, everybody looks like an angel compared to him. But we do that quite often in life is that we compare. But when it comes to God and we have a revelation of him and when the people back in the Old Testament had a revelation of him, suddenly they had an awareness of what was really going on in their own lives. But God brings a revelation of himself in a very specific context. And that is that um, he doesn't leave his people in despair at their fall, fallen state. In fact, God's context for involvement in humanity is, um, is family and community. God comes to uh, a people, the children of Israel, and he rescues them out of slavery. And he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. Here's who I am. And we're family. So in the context of relationship, I'm going to reveal myself, even though I know it's going to make you feel like, wow, we're sinful. Uh, and so God covenants with people. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to be with you. And so one of the, the first covenants that we have in the Bible, there are lots of them, um, is it, that where God says, after Moses goes up and receives the second set of um, Ten Commandments, after he broke the first set, um, it says, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did uh, to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And so this is a conditional covenant that, that God sets up. Um, it has this kind of if-then uh, set up to it where God is saying, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my uh, treasured possession. And it's... Um, a Caesarean vassal type of covenant. I'm sure you all know that. And what that means is uh, if a conquering king came and took over another land, over another people, he would dictate the terms of the covenant, uh, of the agreement between them. You will serve me, you will do what I say, and in return I'll not kill you, or whatever it happens to be. Okay, So it's a very familiar covenant that, that um, 
particularly in, in that era, in those days, they would have been familiar with. But it requires um, you to keep your end of the bargain in order to receive what it is that the common is about. Um, and so we see that, that God says, if you, if you follow me, if you, do my, if you follow my ways, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. And so then God goes on to reveal what that actually looks like. And so we have um, the law is revealed. God says, I'm going to come and dwell amongst you. This is how you're to behave. This is what the tabernacle needs to look like. And he details all these things. And he says, if you can keep all these conditions, I'm going to come. My presence is going to come. And uh, so in, in this, this kind of point in the Jewish history, we have uh, the children of Israel, they're in the desert. And God gives details for the tabernacle to be, to be made. And God says, I'm going to come. So if you like, everybody's living in tents. And there's a big tent in the middle. And God himself is going to come and dwell in that tent. Now, there is a bit of a funny bit in Scripture where God says, look, <laughs> I don't really do tents, but, you know, I'm going to be with you anyway. I'm a little bit big for a tent, but I'm going to come because I want you to be with me and I want to be with you. So the entire structure of the tent city that the children of Israel lived in revolved around the tabernacle in the center where God put his presence there. And so God says, I'm, I'm going to come and you're going to see my glory. And uh, we're going to look at that in Leviticus 9. I'm sure you were all thinking, I wonder if you're going to talk from Leviticus this morning. Probably quite a high chance. Yes, I am. Um, so if you do have a Bible, you can look at Leviticus. It's good to look in, in your own Bible, but it's going to be on the screen here as well. Well, And we're going to, to read a passage. It is quite long and comes with a slight warning. It's quite brutal as well. Okay, particularly if you like animals. But it says uh, from uh, verse 1, On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. uh, And he said to Aaron, Take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old without defect, for a burnt offering. And an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. So there are all these sacrifices that have to be made. You've got the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And I'm sure you all know what those are all about. But let me just summarize. They're to do with sin. They're to do with sinfulness. It's God painting a picture that you can't just come into his presence, that something has to change, that a price has to be paid. And in fact, something has to die. And if it's not going to be you, It needs to be something else. And so in the Old Testament sacrificial um, system, our sin is imputed, is passed on to these animals which which take our place and are killed on our behalf. But what um, God says through Moses is, if you do this, if you actually 
do all these offerings, here's what's going to happen. The glory of the Lord is going to appear to you. The glory of the Lord. And, you know, that actually should really catch us. Like, the glory of the Lord, the actual presence of God is going to come. And we use that word glory, and we sing it in lots of songs. What does it actually mean? And it's very hard to get a definition of that. And in fact, scholars writing about the glory of the Lord are like, it's very hard to define. Here's a couple of little sort of definitions that John Piper gives. Um, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. So the glory of, of God is a revelation of his and holiness we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's a sense of otherness, that God is different from us, that he's set apart, that he's pure in a way that we can hardly get our minds around, but he's different from us. Um, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. I love that. Sounds very fancy, doesn't it? Um, the glory of the Lord is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many faceted, many sides of his perfection. When God's glory comes, we're captivated by who he is and what he's about. But actually, our human minds find it almost impossible to take it all in. And God has set in place a system of sacrifices to say, if you do these things, then my glory, my actual presence will come. And it all starts with God. It's all initiated by God. God is the one saying, I'm going to come because you can't come to me. I can only come to you. But I want to come to you. I want to reveal my glory to you. I want you to experience my presence. The heart of God is always towards us. No matter how far we walk away from him, what he's saying is, I'm going to make a way for us to be in relationship, for us to see each other for that face-to-face -face that we were talking about last week to happen. But there's sin in the way, and something needs to happen in order for that to be removed. It says it like this in Romans 3, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So we can come freely into God's presence. We can experience him because of what Jesus has done at the cross. But back then, what they saw was that something had to die for them to come into the presence of God. And in fact, the animals that died did not deal with sin. God left the sin unpunished. But he created a system that showed here are the consequences of sin. And he chose to not see the sin of the children of Israel anymore after those sacrifices were made. But let's just move on in this passage to see what happened. Moses said to Aaron, come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came to the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. His sons brought the blood to him and he dipped his finger into the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. On the altar he burned the fat, the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burned up outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering, 
His sons handed him the blood and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. They handed him the burnt offering piece by piece, including the head, and he burned them on the altar. He washed the internal organs and the legs and burnt them on the top um, of the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron then took, brought the offering that was for the people. He took the goat for the people's sin offering and slaughtered it and offered it for a sin offering as he did with the first one. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in the prescribed way. He also brought the grain offering, took a handful of it and burnt it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as a fellowship offering for the people. His sons handed him the blood and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. But the fat portions of the ox and the ram, the fat tail, the layer of fat, and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, these they laid on the breasts and then Aaron burned the fat on the altar. Aaron waved the breast and the right thigh before the Lord as a wave offering as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. That's a lot of blood, isn't it? That is a lot of killing. And as I was reading this passage, I realized something. Aaron and the priests are absolutely covered, absolutely covered in blood. There's no way that they couldn't be slaughtering all these animals, carrying all these pieces of flesh. They are covered completely in blood, the blood of animals. That's a lot of work. Is it worth it? That's a lot of pain, a lot of bloodshed. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. God accepted the bloodshed of these animals. This is an acceptable sacrifice. And it says here, and let's just take this in for a moment. I mean, these people are standing there. And it says that fire comes out of the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. The whole thing goes up in flames. And the entire children of Israel, the enti an entire nation is standing there. And it says that as one, they shouted for joy. They shouted for joy at the presence of God. But then they fell face down. They're actually down on their knees. They're coming face down because God has come. The glory of God has come. God has revealed himself. And they have become worthy because of this bloodshed to enter into God's presence. And they worship him. They worship the living God. God accepts their offering as worship to him. And it all comes from the heart of God. And it's everyone. Everyone catches a glimpse of the glory of God. Not just one or two people. Not just those weirdos. And you know the way you have like some people who are a wee bit melodramatic? One or two. There's always one or two. Everyone shouts for joy and everyone falls face down before God because they have received a revelation of him and of his nature. 
and God accepts them and their offerings, and he consumes them. God comes and consumes their offering of worship. And what is wrong with us today that when it comes to worship, we've forgotten this? You see, we have become the consumers of worship. We come to church and the worship starts and we go, I'm not really in the mood for this. Or, oh, not this song again. I hate this song. I've heard this song so many times. Or I wish to do that song. Or whatever it happens to be. We actually become consumers of worship. We live in a consumer society where actually worship is pumped out to us. New songs are coming out all of the time. And, and we think that worship has, is about us. I don't like the way that song makes me feel. I don't like the lyrics of that one. Could it be that actually we are taking our worship as an acceptable offering to God and going, here God, here's our worship. Here's our best. Take it. And we hope you find it acceptable, Lord. Here you are, holy God. We worship you. We declare your greatness. Could it be that actually something needs to change in the way that we approach God and the way we approach his throne in the way that we come with our worship that if we actually caught a glimpse of him, of his holiness and his glory, that something within us would actually just cry out, that there'd be a shout that would come from us, that we would be on our knees before God because his actual presence would come. You know, people say things, particularly people that, that, that don't know very much about God, and they say, you know, when I get to God, I'm, I'm going to ask him some questions. I have some questions for God, you know. I'm going to ask him this, and I'm going to ask him that. And my response to that is, no, you won't. You won't be doing that. When we see God as he really is, when we see him face to face, we're not going to be asking questions like, why do children experience uh, pain when cutting teeth when they haven't really done anything wrong? We'll not be asking that question. We'll be saying, God, you're holy. You're worthy of praise. Do we get all of eternity to worship you? That's amazing. That's fantastic. We'll lift his name high. And in this picture, through these sacrifices, these people get a glimpse of the glory of God. But you know what? It's a fading glory. Because the next day or the next week, these same people who had seen what? The plagues. They'd seen the Red Sea parted. They'd been given manna um, and food from heaven. They had received water out of rocks. These same people in which the glory of God comes down and they fall down and worship him. A couple of days later or a couple of weeks later are just sinning all over the place. They haven't changed. They haven't actually let that encounter do something to them. They've seen the glory of God. But then because of their sin, it fades away. And it fades away because they're part of an inferior covenant. The, co the covenant that they're part of requires them to keep up their end of the bargain. And all these sacrifices and all this um, sort of activity of God towards us presents the need of a saviour, presents the need of a, of, of a sacrifice that is going to be for all people for all time. It presents the need of a new covenant. And the new covenant um, is detailed in Jeremiah, where it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. 
It will not be the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And, and that, just that term husband, you know, speaks about God and his desire to be with us and how we are unfaithful, how we are adulterous as a people, that we'll go from this intimate relationship with God and we will we'll take ourselves and prostitute ourselves to other things and to um, stuff that is not God. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. This is the covenant. Yep, next. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and, uh, and will remember their sins no more. You see how many times the word I is up in there? I will put my law on their hearts, uh, their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So instead of it being the if-then kind of covenant, this is a covenant where God says, here's my covenant and I'm going to help you. I'm going to make both ends of this covenant stick together because you can't. You can't hold, uphold your end of the bargain. And so we are the people that are part of this glorious covenant because Jesus came and he became the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He died on the cross and he paid the price fully for our sin so that there would never be a barrier between us and God again. And in fact, that we're presented holy in God's sight. We're presented holy. We're changed, we're transformed because we're presented holy. God's spirit comes and lives within us. So rather than in, in, in the Old Testament times, God's presence coming and resting on the tabernacle and being amongst the people, unless they sinned and then God lifted his presence. God says, I'm not going to be near you. You're not going to be around me. I'm going to be in you. My actual presence, my actual glory is going to be in you. And what happens is that we are then, because of the presence of God, we're transformed we're transformed, and the word that we get is the word metamorphosis. And we think very often about metamorphosis being like the whole um, sort of caterpillar and butterfly. And uh, normally I would go there, but I'm going to go for frogs instead. Is that okay? So, sorry, uh, where's my picture of frogs? Is it not there? Oh, can we go back then? Um, I had this lovely slide. And on it, there was a tadpole, and then it turned slowly into a frog over time. It was wonderful. So you can picture, picture that in your mind. Um, so that's, that's called metamorphosis. But if a child was to reach down into a pond, and there's a tadpole swimming about, and it lifted that tadpole out of the water, and it said, hey, tadpole, I want to be your friend, as children sometimes do. You know, come on, me and you, we'll hang out, we'll be together. Me and my tadpole, this is my little pet. After a while, what would happen? Tadpole would die because it can't live outside of water. But if that tadpole goes through metamorphosis, goes through change, it will turn into something different. And that something different would be a frog. And then I could reach down, take it out of the water and say, right, Mr. Frog, me and you, we can breathe the same air, we can be in the same environment, we can be together. And, and, and actually what happens to us as human beings is that we go through metamorphosis. You see, we start off 
and we live in a bubble. And the bubble is um, full of liquid, it's called a womb. And we are um, not breathers of air when we're in this womb, okay? So I don't know the science in this and I didn't bother researching it, but we breathe liquid oxygen and we are fed through our belly buttons and we live in this environment and we're completely fine in this environment. But and if we were to take a child out of a womb at 20 weeks, it wouldn't be able to survive because its lungs wouldn't have developed and it would die. But if it continues to grow, metamorphosis happens with human beings. They go from, in a second, from breathing liquid, from being fed through their belly buttons, to actually breathing air and being fed through their mouths. And they're, they're changed, they're transformed from the state that they, they lived in to a new state. Um, they become living, breathing entities. And what was foreign to them now becomes normal after birth. And so when we are born again, we're metamorphosized, we're changed, we're transformed. We go from actually not being able to be in the presence of holiness, in the same way that a tadpole can't be in, in, in the air, right? We cannot be in the, the presence of holiness because we are other from it, okay? Um, we actually are changed and transformed so that we can actually start to breathe the air of heaven to speak the language of heaven and the language of holiness, that we can be in the presence of God because we have become like him because of what Jesus did. And so what, we, we, what happens to us, just like a newborn baby, is that we start to breathe the air of heaven. We start to live in the presence of God. And we are given the ability to do that by God. And we start to then grow in the goodness of living in heaven. And just like um, a baby starts to grow and uh, it goes from, from milk to solid foods. It goes from not being able to communicate to being able to talk, being able to walk, being able to run. We as Christians, having been brought into the environment of heaven, of breathing the air of holiness, of breathing the air of heaven, our start, we start to grow and we start to live in the good of that and that becomes our normal, is the environment of heaven. And, and the more normal it becomes, the less normal other things become in the world that actually were changed and transformed where heaven becomes our reality, heaven becomes the place from which we think and from which we see and which we understand life. And that comes through revelation because God's desire is for us to know ourselves in our transformed state and to understand himself. And so he reveals himself to us and we become changed and we become transformed. And um, Paul, uh, sorry, Peter talks about it like this, this transformed state. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and pr precious promises, so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So we have been given the ability to participate in the divine nature. We have become like God. We're presented wholly in his sight. We're able to communicate with him. There is no barrier between us and God anymore. The barrier of sin has been removed. We're able to actually be in the presence of a holy God without us dying. 
which is good, isn't it? If God came now in his holiness, we would still be alive because of Jesus, because of the change and transformation that has happened in us. And so, you know, Peter is saying, we have this divine power. We have knowledge of who God is. We have an understanding of his glory and his goodness. We have his precious promises so that we can participate in the divine nature. Having been given the opportunity to participate in the divine nature, would we forsake that opportunity and think, nah, no divine nature thing. I'll do it on a Sunday, but being like God, and it's too hard, and it's not really worth it. We, we shouldn't think like that, but sometimes we act like that is true. And we need to learn to live fully in, in the, the nature that has been given to us by God, the nature that was paid for by Jesus at the cross, that we can come into the presence of a holy God, that we can experience change and transformation in our lives. And so this verse goes on to say, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. And so we see, I don't have time to talk about it in depth today, but this pattern of change and transformation that we add to our faith, that we don't stay in our just rescued state, that actually we want to grow up in the faith, that we don't want to just continue to be a baby who's happy to breathe air and be fed, that we want to see the baby that we are spiritually grow and mature. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, love. And you know, this life reflecting the nature of God, that's our acceptable act of worship. It's so much more than just singing songs on a Sunday. If you really want to worship God, what we need to decide is, do we want to look like him? Do we want to be like him? Do we want to reflect who he is in his holiness? And so if we want to see that happen, we've got to realize that we've got to change See, we're longing for a movement of God in our church, in our town, and in our land. But every movement of God has to start with a movement within God's people. A move away from sin and towards holiness. A move um, of repentance. A move to, away to God's word and, and God's word being held up as truth outside of whatever it happens to be that society is going to tell us is, is true and good and right. And there is this challenge in us. Do we want to see God come? Do we want to see God's glory come and God's glory fall? And are we prepared to change if that's going to happen? And, and I think about that a lot. And when I think about it, I kind of think, you know, if God's glory is going to come, if revival is going to come, if we are going to see a move of God like we've never seen before in our lifetime on this earth, I'm not ready for it. I need to change. Something in me needs to be transformed. The sin that, that is so comfortable to me that I allow it to exist in my life, the patterns in my life that aren't good or healthy, something needs to change in me. Because if God's glory was to come in the way that we just read, in the Old Testament, and I was to shout out, God, you're here, and fall on my knees, 
and cry out to him, I know I'd be thinking, I need to change. I need to change. And so I want to encourage us that the God who once was distant because of sin drew close in the person of Jesus. That Jesus lived in community with a group of believers and he told them who he was and how to relate to him. That he showed us the path and the way for us to have the fullness of relationship with him. When the Spirit of God descended at Pentecost, God's Holy Spirit filled those first believers and God's Holy Spirit fills us now so that what was once impossible for us to obey God's laws, to fulfill his commandments, to live for him, what was once impossible is possible now because we have been changed and transformed into the likeness of God. We have the ability to breathe the air of heaven. We have the ability having the transformed mind, as it says in Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Our minds have been transformed. We can think like heaven. We can think from heaven's reality into earth. Our sight has been transformed. We can see and th- uh, the way God sees things. We can hear the voice of God. All of these things enable us to live like God. We need to get that. You know, Paul, when he's writing to the churches um, all around um, in the New Testament, writes to the saints. And we don't like that. We don't like that term, the saints. It's been misconstrued over history too. But we are saints because of what Jesus has done, because his presence changes and transforms us, that we're no longer servants. We're saints we're people who have um, a relationship with God, where God calls us his sons and daughters, where we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ, that we have a place of authority. And so when we think about uh, our, our verse from the start, that we with unveiled faces, seeing God, being in relationship with him, are experiencing glory upon glory, we're being transformed into his likeness. We get to go on that journey. But we also owe the world an encounter with that reality. We don't, you don't owe the world an encounter with you on your best day, or you being nice, or you telling people about Jesus. You owe the world more than that. You owe the world an encounter with the living God. You're thinking, well, I can't do that. Yes, you can. Because the presence of the living God is within you. When people experience you, when they encounter you, they should encounter Jesus. More and more, when people encounter me, they should encounter Jesus. That scares me. Because I think, I'm not really that good. But God's presence is with us. And he is calling us to live holy lives. And he gives us everything that we need to be able to do that. And so what I want to just encourage us to do today, is really just to think again about who God is and what Jesus did at the cross and what he paid for. And let us not be satisfied to settle for less than the fullness of what he paid for, that we might know him, that we might see him, that we might live in the good of who he is. So the band's going to come up again. And what I want us to do, just as a way of helping us to, to think about that, to contemplate that, is we're going to take communion together. Um, 
And so when we've looked at that sacrifice in the Old Testament and the temporal nature of of it, and the fact that it, it didn't actually pay for the sin, but God accepted it at the time because Jesus was going to come afterwards, I want us to think again about what Jesus did, how he died, what he paid for. But just as Aaron and and the the priests were covered in the blood of these animals so that they could be acceptable in God's sight, that we are holy in God's sight. We're holy in God's sight. That's how he sees us, but that's how he wants us to live as well. So I I just want to read um, a couple of verses from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After after he has suffered, he will see the light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear our iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Lord, we just thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you took our sin upon yourself, And you did that, God, because you desired relationship with us. That even though we were in sin and helpless, that you came. That you decided that you would have relationship with us and you made a way. 
And God, we thank you for that. We thank you that we're not just free to come into your presence, but that we can live and continue to be in it, to continue to be changed and transformed, to experience glory upon glory, revelation upon revelation, transformation upon transformation. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that completely pays for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for that.